Cool. I'm going to get started now. I normally aim for these uh, messages to be about 30 minutes. Today, guys, is going to land at about 35. So please, I'm sorry about those extra five minutes. But I have, in many ways, been preparing this talk for what feels like years. I'm talking about God and masculinity. God and masculinity. To all the men in the room, I want you to know that this is an environment, this is a place which is good for you. It's not a jacuzzi, but it is a place where you will be stretched, where you'll experience what's known as flow as you seek God's kingdom you are challenged, but yet supported. There's something worth living for here. And to all the ladies in the room that went, oh, of all the Sundays, why did I choose this one? It's not just a message for the men. I think it will help all of us. Uh, everyone in this room, I suspect, has got brothers, colleagues, friends who are male, and I think will be learning um, along with us tonight. Why am I talking about this for 35 minutes? Quite simply, it's because I believe there is a crisis, and it's not maybe what you first think. It's nuanced. And it's important. If you think that everything in the world today is okay, that men are doing fine, that everything is as it should be, I will not have much to offer you because that certainly isn't my view. But I don't think there are a lot of people in that uh, camp. I think more likely, as I've done the research, there are two quite different camps. There's one camp that looks at this whole situation and says, you know, Paul, the problem with what's going on in the world right now is masculinity. To put it down to a genetic level, it's the Y chromosome. That's where it all starts going wrong. Masculinity is an outdated construct, and it's, the problem is too much of it. And then on the other side, you've got a group of people saying, no, 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 no. The problem is that there's not enough masculinity, not enough understanding of what it means to be a man. And this idea has been sidelined and ridiculed, and it's caused men to be adrift. We need to recover our bearings. Now, these are quite diverse opinions, which then have completely different lenses through which the whole problem is addressed, and therefore will arrive at completely different prescriptions. So that's why it's an interesting one just to dive into, because as we examine our own hearts, we suddenly realize this has become quite a cultural hot potato, which is difficult to even talk about without people being offended quickly. And since we have guests here, a warm welcome to you, and we all have come today with different arrival points and different lenses, I'd like to lay out some common ground, right? That is, after all, the name of the church. And so let's read together from Genesis 1. In the beginning is how this chapter starts. And I think it's important for us to grasp what we see captured here from verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in the beginning, God, there is a creator, and that God has created image bearers. Notice those image bearers are not men, and they're not women. They are men and women, male and female, both exhibiting the nature of God to a watching world. There is equality, and yet there is difference. He didn't create the male and male, or female and female. He created the male and female. Beautiful equality, both made in His image, but then also beautiful difference as femininity and masculinity is expressed. But wait, not all. He didn't just tell, look at each other and, and just sit around all day. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, them, okay, plural, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. There's something to being an image bearer which has got verbs attached to it. You get your life behind a purpose of seeing God's kingdom come of being fruitful and seeing multiplication and seeing filling and subduing and dominion. Important right up front, establishing common ground that this is not a zero-sum game, some kind of tug of war that we're trying to pull towards the masculine side and away from the femininity side. No, in God's beautiful creation, there is a beautiful difference, equality, but yet difference 
that doesn't result in a zero-sum game, but actually results in abundance and fruitfulness and multiplication. So we're not trying to harken back to some yesteryear arrangement and go, oh, let's get back to the 70s, people. That's not at all the heart. I think what we're going to hopefully get by the end of today is that we've all identified there's something wrong, but there is something we can do about it. And so that's the structure for tonight. We're going to be firstly looking at the crisis of masculinity, diving into some of the markers, some indicators of what's going on, some solutions that I suggest don't work, and then finally, a way forward. So let's, let's collect a few markers. I'm going to start with my bank, right? My bank got hold of me 10 days ago, and they didn't inspire this talk. Like I said, this has been something brewing longer than that, but it arrived at a, at a good time. Let me read to you. Reimagining a Mental Health is the title. It says, Mindful Masculinity, Exploring Men's Mental Health. My bank goes on. It says, In the depths of the human mind, a battle unfolds every day, a battle for mental health and well-being a battle to find peace, balance, and happiness. Mental wellness is getting the attention that it needs, but for men, it often remains concealed in the shadows of societal expectations. We live in a world where men are meant to be cowboys who certainly don't cry. They're viewed as the pillars of strength, unwavering and unyielding. This expectation has, for generations, confined men to a mental prison of their own making. We're demons of despair. This is my bank, people. Demons of despair and suicidal ideation lurk in the murky corners. Now, they, in a podcast that's associated with this, go into some detail with comedian Jason Goliath as he kind of confesses his mental health struggles. He's on stage, he's trying to make everyone else laugh, but off stage, he's kind of thinking about taking his own life. Incredibly vulnerable, sharing his struggle. And in the details, it comes out that South African men are four times more likely to take their own lives than women. And globally, that stat is also normally hovering around three times, 75% of um, self-harm being men. I, I'm going to go on. Uh, markers of a crisis. Johan Fury writes it in News 24. is the following article, The Costs of a Fatherlessness, Fatherless um, Society. He literally totals it up, a massive problem in South Africa. Right now, the latest stats would suggest that about 60% just over 60% of children in South Africa who are under the age of 18. So picture all the children in South Africa under the age of 18, 60% of them at home do not have a father. Okay. The majority of kids in South Africa do not have a father figure in the home. And then just below it is an article uh, entitled Violence Against Women is Staggeringly High in South Africa. A different way of thinking about it is needed. Um, again, stats are often where people debate. I think the bottom line is it is bad would be the most important headline. Uh, roughly 51% of South African women have experienced gender-based violence during the course of their life, and about 76% of men have admitted to perpetrating gender-based violence at different points in their lives. There are also markers that this crisis is not just a South African problem. I'm going to pop up an article written in the Washington Post by Christine Ember. It's an opinion piece. She put a lot of work into it, and it's sparked quite a lot of debate where she's writing, the headline says, men are lost, here's a map out of the wilderness. And why it's particularly um, taken traction is that it wasn't the one side going at, at the other or you know, vice versa. It felt like an honest attempt to go, hey, guys, we're normally quite a left-leaning publication, but if we notice the data here, it does not look good. And it kind of that vulnerability allowed a conversation to kick off. You'll see it's not just the Washington Post. The next screenshot will show you, if you type in crisis of masculinity, you're going to get as diverse publications as Vox, the New Yorker, and even the Financial Times people. The Vox article had the following paragraph, which I think is quite instructive. It said, normally, more attention on a problem is a precursor to solving it. 
But in this case, for whatever reason, the added awareness doesn't seem all that helpful. The masculinity conversation feels stuck, rarely moving beyond banal observations or reflective, reflexive dismissals. Here's my interpretation of what they say. There are such different views on this that as soon as you raise kind of the data and even the markers that I've superficially raised now, straight away people say, yeah, but look at the gender pay gap. Look at, look at corporates. Look at how many men are in the, in the C-suite. This is not a problem. This is made up. This is you guys trying to get back to your power. The, and then suddenly the conversation gets hectic. More heat is created than light. And then the data gets ignored or pushed aside and, and the conversation just doesn't get resolved or moved forward. It's not just a fringe issue that a few publications pick up. There's a lot of scholarly work going on at the moment trying to figure out what's happening. Uh, two books I commend to you. Hannah Rosen, writing about a decade ago, called it The End of Men and the Rise of Women. And then most recently off the press from the Brook, uh, Brook, Brookings Institute, Richard Reeves has written of boys and men, why the modern man is struggling, why it matters, and what to do about it. People looking at serious policy suggestions around what needs to be done. And I also want to commend Andrew Haslam from Grace Church in London, who's part of the Advanced Network, who actually gave an, an over an hour and a half talk on this topic, who I've learned a lot on and learned a lot from. So let's get stuck into my best attempt to pull this research together and say, let's look at what the crisis is. And um, I'm flying through things, but I do hope you'll appreciate that this is the start of a conversation, and, and let's have the conversation as a community. So there's a laundry list of things. The first marker is related to work. Work. Um, in the Western world, certainly, the economy has tipped uh, towards women. Global unemployment for men has jumped from 2% to 9%. Hannah Rosen, in her book, um, that The End of Men and the Rise of Women, speaks about the economy now more and more in the West and amongst the knowledge economy especially, becoming more and more of a traveling sisterhood. Why, why is this? Uh, she asks the question, and she thinks one of the major reasons is the working world has changed. And those strengths that men previously, and I'm not saying exclusively only men can show this, but what men have typically been good at, where they've been able to use their size and their strength, are no longer really required in a post-industrial economy, which is indifferent to brawn, right? They give, uh, Hannah gives the case of uh, pharmacists, and I found this quite interesting. Pharmacists used to have to lug heavy chemicals and bags and have to mix them all together and create the tablets. But quite frankly, all of that now happens in a, in a sterile industrial environment. And pharmacists much more need to demonstrate the skill of empathy and good administration and connection with people. If the pharmacy profession, as a result, went from being 100% male to being a predominantly female. Now, that's not good or bad. It's just that that is what's happening. That might not be happening in your particular profession, but more and more, the brain and the, and the oh, sorry, the brawn and the size that men contributed, quite frankly, is not needed. Machines can do that. There's one area where men still excel um, with women, and that is the ability to die on the job. The most <laughs> dangerous jobs are still reserved for men, and the vast majority of people that die doing their job are, are men. The second marker is related to education. I found this fascinating. Across the world, no matter where you look, girls are massively outperforming boys. So much so that the Brookings Institute and Reeves actually recommend boys should start school a year later than girls. It's just so obvious that they are not at the level required and are getting trounced across the board. If you've ever heard around Finland and their outstanding education and people travel to Finland to learn from it, here's the data, if you look at it. The Finnish boys are just like everyone else. It's the Finnish girls that are just outperforming and doing incredibly well. 
but the boys are just as good as the American boys. It, there's so many examples that are given. Universities at the moment, the, the Americans give the stats, for every 100 women that graduate, 75 men are graduating. It's not like they've dropped in IQ or ability, it's just quite simply the case that it appears they're no longer putting in the effort. They're no longer motivated, and that's going to translate into much uh, less career options later. Some other policy suggestions that have come out is that schools should start at 9 a.m., giving like, sleepy boys more time to wake up. Uh, there, there's, there's fascinating research going on at the moment. But suffice to say, in that Washington Post article, the dirty secret at the moment is that universities in the States, and I suspect around the world, are having to uh, put in um, what would be called uh, less criteria for boys to get into universities than girls because they, they've noticed that, that the, the drop of enrollment in boys has affected um, the, the kind of culture of the, of the place. And they're actually having to go, guys, we need to lower the standards so that more boys can get in, because at the moment, if it was fair, the girls would be dominated. I'm not saying that's the right policy response. I'm saying that's kind of what the Washington Post had to say. It's like, guys, it's got that bad. That it, there's almost this corrective action to try to help get the guys going. On the family side, I've really noticed in South Africa the tragedy of over 60% of our children under the age of 18 not having a father in the home. And, and can I also just say the tragedy often is that these gaps are getting wider. So the education gap is getting wider. The work gap is getting wider. And same with families. They're not actually narrowing. And you might be sitting there saying, but Paul, if the dad's not there, surely that affects both boys and girls. And you'd be right. It does affect both boys and girls. But what sociologists are picking up is that the girls still generally have their moms there. And their moms create a nurturing environment and someone who they can look at and go, that's my role model. That's someone who, who I could be like that one day. And there are a lot of single moms in this community that are doing a heroic job. But the truth is that their sons look at them and there's still a vacuum in, in who they are and who they aspire to be. It's a uniquely male issue. And sociologist Michael Gurian, who as far as I know is not a Christ follower, has, has studied this in particular. And he's pointed out that boys need a father to help them, quite frankly, calm down and make moral choices. There's an African proverb which he refers to, which is, if you, we do not initiate the boys, they will burn the village down. If we do not initiate the boys, they will burn the village down. Provocatively, he asks the question, why are prisons full of men? And he believes it's because the problems start in childhood with absent fathers, resulting in lost boys who burn the village down and cause chaos. Uh, Junga writes a short book called Tribe. He says young boys are kind of left uninitiated by the absence of their fathers. And they are dying as they make choices to almost run their own initiation rites because no one else has initiated them. They live their whole lives wondering, am I good enough? Am I man enough? And these unregulated emotions lead to all kinds of chaos simply because men have abandoned their post and are not teaching the next generation how to be men. And there are many organizations that are working into this. I see Mertens here from The World Needs a Father. There's, there's a lot of people in this community that are passionate about this because the crisis is, is clearly evident. The world needs a father. South Africa needs a father. Now, below the line, those are all quite easy to measure. You know, below the line, we've got things like mental health, addictions, and despair. The kind of inner problems that are going on. We often hear about toxic masculinity, which is a problem. People with unregulated emotions burning the village down. But actually, there's a massive problem with just large-scale apathy and men kind of checking out of the whole thing. And I'm so confused. I'm out of here. We've spoken about self-harm as 
as men take their own lives, maybe ask the question, well, what got them to that place? Why, why did they get that bleak? What was happening internally that you got to that place of almost seeming oblivion? Think to yourself right now, of friends or family, people who sometimes can get locked into self-destructive behaviors, those addictions, those things that they choose because they hurt, they choose to try and numb and deal with the pain. We all do this to a certain extent. But over time, instead of numbing the pain, they actually create more and more pain. Who are the people most likely, if you think about it, to self-destruct? Unfortunately, most people would answer, well, it's the men I know that tend towards those behaviors. And Zimbardo, who wrote, uh, co-authored a book called Men Disconnected, does some thinking about this. And he speaks about two particular causes that can lead to this inner malaise of, of pain numbing, pain numbing. The one source of, of addiction is pornography. And I know it's not fashionable to kind of talk about this, oh, the church is going on about pornography. Well, here's a, here's a guy who's not a pastor just saying it's incredibly destructive, the hours that are spent on it. So not exclusively men, women as well, but men especially can, can feel its destructive effects. As young men with arousal addiction struggle to get joy in the real world and, and, and experience great anxiety in social interactions. It's interesting, some of the colleges now hire full-time people whose job it is, they get, get extra staff in, to try and have people have face-to-face conversations in the first week of the university. Because so many people are on their devices and they're off on their own, they're desperately trying to help people talk to one another. That's got that bad. And the second thing Zimbardo points out besides pornography is gaming. Uh, the average under 21-year-old, by the time they hit 21, have, done, uh, has, have managed over 10,000 hours of games. And it takes just under 5,000 hours to get a bachelor's degree. So you've pretty much got two degrees in gaming by the time you're 21. Uh, smashed through uh, Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule. And, and, and you know, I've, I played some footy manager back in the day, so I'm not judging anyone. But I didn't, you know, I think we should all acknowledge, sure, that's got to lead you in a certain place. If, you've, if you're the king of Fortnite and, you, and you're living with all your brides of pornography, you know, what, what is going on in your head? Where do you find yourself? I think you find yourself quite stuck. And so in many ways, the world is a better place. The world's prosperous. There's much more equality. We do not want to go back from where we are, but there's also something wrong with men. And Andrew Haslam, in his talk, gave the following analogy. He said, if you visited a zoo and you saw eagles and you saw lions, you saw those animals, you'd see that they are fed, they are cleaned, they are comfortable. But I don't think you would ever leave a zoo going, yo, those guys are living their best lives. They have got nothing to fear. No, you would leave there going, man, I don't think they're flourishing. I don't think they're living the life they should be living. Something is off. And his simple observation was, isn't that us as men? There are no simple answers to this, but can we at least acknowledge, acknowledge the problem would be the suggestion. And it, in a way, it's just simply looking at it, if you, if you analyze back 100, 200 years, certain parts of the world, not the Western world currently, you would see that from a young age, boys were raised to grow in strength, and to make a positive contribution. They quite simply had to assume responsibility, or else they were going to die, and the community they were part of was going to suffer incredible loss. You can't picture someone out, you know, back in the day going, sorry, I'm just going to go play a game here for 10,000 hours. You guys sow the crops. You guys defend the territory. You guys build the dam. I'm just gaming here for the next 10 years. It just wouldn't be the case. But yet today, if you want to demonstrate typical masculine strengths, and these aren't just for men, but typically things like aggression, things like leadership, taking responsibility, these things are now regarded as actively dangerous or just not needed at all. No wonder men are struggling to adjust. Now, 
there are many more markers we can talk about. And, and of course, these markers are not just exclusively to men. There are many other problems which, um, which could be talked about. But let's now think about solutions. And I'm going to think there's some ways that don't work. The first way that doesn't work is to ignore or deny the problem. You just look at it and you say, you know, Paul, that's, a, that's, that's, that's unfortunate what you're describing. But let's also just look at all the damaging effects that are happening to women. And you could talk about gender pay gaps, uh, gender-based violence, 100% legitimate. But here's the thing. It's not an either-or. It's not a tug-of-war. You can be saying in the, at the same time, we need to stop gender-based violence and take active steps there. And also be saying, boys need to start a year later at school. Right? Those two things are not mutually exclusive. And I think a lot of the reason why we deny, ignore the issue is we fixated on our set of data. And we think it's one team or the other rather than saying, Perhaps we can work on both of them at the same time. The second option, which I don't think works, is to retreat into the acceptable view that there are no real differences. Kind of saying, you know what, Paul, it's, it's all a construct. Masculinity, femininity, it's all a social construct. And therefore, we actually should be stepping away from anything like this. Now, my only comment to that would be, hey, that itself is a social construct. To say that there is no, no, no gender, no male or female, that there isn't, in the image of God, he made the male and female equality but difference. To say that is also a construct which has actually only come up in the last few decades. And it doesn't actually allow us to deal with problems that are specific to women and men. By analogy, if there were medical doctors here, if they were having someone in their practice, they would want quite early to find out, is this a man or is this a woman? Because if they've got abdominal pains, they're very radical different diagnosis that could be used. Women can't have prostate cancer, for instance, right? Men can't have babies. There is a big difference biologically at that level, and all that I'm suggesting is that perhaps at the level of the soul, there are also differences between. And if we ignore that, we ignore the tools available to us to speak about them. The final thing, which has been tried, um, is the kind of message that, hey, improve your life, man. Just pull up your socks. And there's Christian versions of this, and there are non-Christian versions of this. This is um, the category I would almost put as the manfluencers. Uh, Andrew Tate, uh, Jordan Peterson, and a whole bunch of others that would advocate a kind of message of get strong, get skills, get stylish, and get social, which is like with the ladies, okay? And your, your whole message is there are all these soft men out there. There are all these passive men out there. You're going to be different. The world hates you. The world thinks you're, you're diabolical, but you need to Get going and take care of yourself. And probably this is twofold. The one problem is you can get strong, get stylish, get stills, get scope, and you're still, at a soul level, deeply unhappy. That, that's the big problem is it over-promises and under-delivers. And you've tried your beard oil and it, like, you're still not happy. Then the second big problem is that we're all different and there are a whole bunch of people that don't want to get strong. There are a whole bunch of people that will never be stylish. It's incredibly exclusive, this whole message of kind of like, be like us. Now, there, there has been a lot of good done in terms of people waking up out of their passivity and taking ownership for their lives and moving out of the home. I mean, what a win that would be. But the bottom line is, it still doesn't meet the soul needs that all of us have. The, the advert which caught my eyes is as follows. Um, Ernest Shackleton was leading an expedition to one of the poles. And he said this, he said, men wanted, this is an historical document, for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. Ernest Shackleton, you know, applied for Burlington Street. 
5,000 people applied for this. He says, people, I reckon men, I, 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 ladies, I think you would look at this and probably have a little bit more wherewithal reading through that. Because here's what a lot of people think. They think, oh, that's what we need to reclaim. We need to go back. That's what's wrong with the world. I would say, hey, I don't think that was a terribly good usage of the one and only life you've been given. You see, we're caught in a bind when you look at something like that. There's a group of people over here saying, let's do it. Let's go back. That's how it should be. But it goes wrong quickly as we try to conform to like a 2D version of what a man's meant to be. And we perform it for others as we act macho and aggressive and we have uncontrolled lust and, and pretty much suffer from emotional constipation. That's the one option. But then on the other side, you're kind of told, well, you know, what is this? There's no place for these male instincts. What kind of an idiot would head off to the South Pole like that? We should have a gender-neutral society where everything's kind of pros and cons. And, and, and we just, I think, then have a whole bunch of people just languishing going, I feel something inside of me. It's, it's not that, but then what is it? What is it? We're caught in this paradox of kind of being told, there's no such thing, is it? And then also, something feels right about charging the hill. And up until now, I think we've largely just had blunt instruments to deal with it. It's just blunt instruments like policies. And I don't know if we really get beyond the state of apathy and languishing that we currently find ourselves in. So a way forward, a way forward to our final 10 minutes. John Tyson, a pastor in New York, has written and, and spoken a lot about this. He has a definition which I find helpful. He says, my definition of masculinity is the joyful pursuit of sacrificial responsibility. God and masculinity. Well, what is masculinity? The, my definition of masculinity is the joyful pursuit of sacrificial responsibility. So there is an advert. Men want it. We're going to get after something. It's going to be joyful. It's going to be going for it. But here's this. It's not about you. It's about others. It's sacrificial. And you're going to be loaded up with responsibility. But walking with Christ and walking in His ways, He's going to allow you to carry that burden. It's going to appear light. And Tyson was sparked by a son, um, his son, who he wanted to raise and become a man. And he did a lot of research before his son turned 13 and took him on this initiation kind of thing, saying, I want my son to know what life's about. And he uh, managed to find a Franciscan monk, uh, Richard Raw, who'd actually done a similar thing and looked. And in his book, um, Reclaiming Adam, I think it's called, he was able to go and look at a whole bunch of cultures, like an anthropologist would, and see how do all these different cultures and different religions raise boys to men? And he found that these were the five rules that pretty much all cultures, without speaking to each other, had come up with. These are the five rules for men. Rule number one, life is hard. You are not that important. Your life is not about you. You are not in control, and you are going to die. Those were the five messages. Now, what are you told is the exact opposite as a boy. Life should be easy. You are the most important thing in the world. It's all about you. You should have a YouTube channel. You should be a TikToker, right? You are in control, and you're going to live forever, right? Those are the things told, but those are all lies. It's no wonder there's so much confusion and there's so much apathy. His son uh, learned these rules and uh, made the school newsletter by saying, life is hard. This is the first rule of manhood when he was seven and uh, had no idea what he was actually talking about. So he thought, no, let me actually transition this a little bit. And so he came up with the following five transitions, which allows us to kind of move from one to the other. Five shifts for boys to embrace and for men to kind of be thinking where our life could be getting stuck. The first shift is the shift from ease to difficulty. When you start out life, 
things should be appropriately easy. You can't be trying to, you know, eat food without um, teeth, for instance. But as life goes on, you should start to embrace difficulty. It's good to experience hard things. There's a strength, there's a dignity, there's a growth that happens when we lean into responsibility, don't run away from responsibility. I'm going to use a few little examples of people. I want to show you John Edwards. Here's a photo of him. He's part of our AM congregation. John was hiking on Lion's Head two weeks ago, and he fell 15 meters. Um, catastrophic. The bush pretty much saved his life. He landed on his back. He's broken his hip. He's broken um, vertebrae at the back here. He's managed to break his elbow, his wrist, as well as um, his sternum. Okay, this is him hugging his physio, taking a step. He's determined to rehabilitate himself. By God's grace, there's no brain damage, and he is able to walk. He's able to do six steps yesterday. When I look at someone embracing difficulty, saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to push this through, not just for me, but for my family and for the people. Something inside of me says, that's right. And that's something all of us should. This is not something to be avoided. This is something that we need to embrace. A life of ease is a lie. A life is where we experience the easy Yoke and the light burden of Jesus is where the action happens. So that's John, who's teaching us at the moment, a life well lived is a life that doesn't avoid pain. Secondly, the shift is from self to others, from self to others. So much, so much uh, that we can learn there. I struggle probably the most with this one. There's some people that walk into a room and go, oh, everyone's here. Oh, I want to listen to them. I want to observe them. I want to make them feel valued. I want to encourage them. I want to respond to them. And then there's people like me that are just like, where's the snacks? This is cold. What's going on? It's a skill to be able to think about others and to serve others. Someone I think of in this congregation is um, Yan Lu. Yan Lu is a guy who comes in the mornings, has a whole bunch of teenagers, sometimes one or two, sometimes a few more, and he just pours out in his life. I mean, there are many other things he could be doing on a Sunday, but he comes and he just thinks about what it's like to be a teenager and pours out his life to them. And they're life group leaders. There are many people in this congregation that are doing that. And he has the beautiful thing. It seems like, oh, vulnerable place. I don't know. Who's going to look after me? But when you head into the pillow at night, you go, that was a life well spent. That was a day where I was becoming more and more like God created me to be. The third uh, journey. Sorry, just to go back. Not the, Those are the cool um, scout badges that uh, you can all get later. <laughs> um, the, the, the journey from whole, thinking it's all about me, to part. In other words, the whole story didn't begin with me. When I arrived in 1980, the world didn't begin, right? The world's been going for thousands of years before I arrived. I am part of the story. I'm not the whole story. It's not about me. One of the surveys done in the state, shame, I pick on them because they do the surveys, was that 80% of children under the age of 15 want to be a YouTuber or a TikToker one day when they grow up. We need to move beyond ourselves. We need to be humble in this area. How about the journey from control to surrender? You go through life thinking, I can control all the outcomes. The truth is you can't. You need to surrender to a higher power. It's part of what the addiction movement got right. AA and others, the first step going, I am powerless, but someone else is in control, and I need to submit to their will. It's the hardest thing sometimes to say that we're not in control. I think of my own life. For a huge chunk of it, I was asking the question, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? Can I achieve? Can I go for it? Can I get qualified? Can I, do I have what it takes? And having got everything stopped and gone, wait, this isn't enough. And quite frankly, it doesn't help me on the other side of the grave. So the next phase kicked off going, can I trust God? Can I trust God with my life? And having taken that step and seen God's goodness, 
I then recognized in my own heart, there's God, but there's a whole bunch of other things competing with God. And so the third phase of my life, which I'm currently in, is, is God enough? If everything else had to be taken from me, is God enough? Is he good? Can I trust him that much? That's the journey from control to surrender. And the final one is from the temporary to eternal, saying, God, this world is crying out. My own body's crying out for instant gratification. Forget about the future. Forget about, like, long term. But yet, that isn't what God's made us for. He's made us for eternity. And the more we can sacrifice now, we, we have the law of the farm. We're sowing so that one day we will reap. The compound interest of a life lived sacrificially for others will grow and grow and grow as we place eternity before our eyes. And so John Tyson actually has a journey called the Primal Path, which he's made into these little scouts badges. You'll see there. And it's just one guy who I've been inspired by. He's just kind of going, man, there's a bigger story out there. And it's not about you, man. It's about others joyfully embracing sacrificial responsibility and love for others. What's an action step we can take? Well, we can start together a bit more as men and talk about this and how we can learn to love God and love others. And we're going to be doing that on the 22nd of November in this venue on a Wednesday. We're going to be diving into a book known as The Disciplines of a Godly Man. We're going to trust God to start to change us. We're not going to talk about it and rah, rah. We're going to, we're going to just get on with doing it. Do the clear stuff of loving God and loving others so that the world starts to change. Let's not wait for others to get it right. And can I just say as a little precursor, this is not going to be a call to kind of get married. It's like, sort it all out by getting married. Like, come on, man, get married. Or, or kind of a call to just be more manly. Like, yeah, mar- marriage and manliness, woo, you know. This is going to be a call to maturity. And what maturity looks like is Christ-likeness. It's going to be a call to become more like Jesus. That's really where I'm going to land tonight. You see, we're made in the image of God, but God came as a man, as Jesus. And when he experience this toxic masculinity. When he's got a whole bunch of autocratic, domineering men, what does he say? He says, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how you deal with power dynamics. And then to all the men that were told, sexually, you can do whatever you want from the 60s onwards. Do whatever you want with whoever you want. No wonder we ended up with the Me Too movement because a whole bunch of men went, hey, I can do whatever I can want with whoever I want. I'm just going to go for it. A mess, absolute mess. Jesus would say to them, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus speaking says, I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Cut out your hand, gouge out your eyes. Jesus gets to the roots and he says, this is nonsense, sort it out. Jesus on male aggression says, hey, you need to turn the other cheek. They say eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I said, you do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Incredible way to channel your power as a man, not to give pain, but to receive pain. Jesus, quite frankly, teaches us how to live well. Gives work, profound dignity. It's an act of worship. Look at what Jesus taught and how it led to the founding of monasteries and schools, Christian education. Because the world's made by a God of truth, there can be truth discovered. He calls men towards families, serving one woman for their life to be present in the lives of their children. And fatherlessness, which was at the center of so much pain. Isn't it interesting that God, the Father, and Jesus Christ model to us at the center of the faith what it is to experience God as Father. He takes men, he puts them into families, and joins them in his redemptive story. And so if you want to find out who the best man is, 
You can find a bunch of examples in this world. You can find a bunch of examples. My experience has been as you get close enough, you'll see the scandal, you'll see the cracks, you'll see the selfishness. But when you look to Jesus, you see others are drawn to him, a courage and a tenderness, a whip for evil money changes, but yet dignity to the woman caught in adultery that others wanted to stone. Jesus gives us a vision of what it means to be a man.